I do want to remind you that uh, it is Sunday morning, so if you'd go ahead and grab that beige card in front. I'm just kidding. Um, but it is Sunday. Our, our church uh, back in Sun Valley is, is worshiping together, and uh, it's no less a privilege to be with you here in the mountains uh, to open God's Word and to see what it has to say for us. But before we do that, uh, I want to talk to you guys about a date in history. 1876. Uh, 1876 was a very, very long time ago, but it was a big year for the world because on March 10th, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell made the first telephone call to his assistant, Thomas Watson. This was so groundbreaking at the time that in just 24 years, by the turn of the century, 600,000 telephones were in use across our beloved country. Five years later, in 1905, there were 2.2 million telephones in use. And five years after that, in 1910, there were an estimated 6 million household telephones across our country. As you know, the sort of innovation of the telephone didn't stop there, right? Uh, It didn't take long for a few visionaries of the time to start to push the boundaries of what the telephone could do. And in 1926, Nikolai Tesla was quoted as saying this of the telephone. One day, we shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance, and the entire earth will be converted into one huge brain. We shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face-to-face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will be amazingly simple compared with our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his pocket. A few years later, a man named Isaac Asimov, he's a renowned science fiction author, built on that idea from Tesla and said of the telephone that there would be a screen that would not only be used to see the people you call, but also for studying documents and photographs and reading passages from books. Fast forward to today, and our phones can do all of that and so much more. Today our phones are calculators and notepads and cameras and radios. The list goes on. I was doing some research from a trusted source called Wikipedia, and it turns out that more people today have access to a smartphone than to running water. Uh, Some of you probably literally drink water less consistently than you use your phone, but we're in the mountains, so you have to drink water. Uh, But today, it would be so unusual to be without a smartphone, right? It would be strange to have never used FaceTime and to see each other face-to-face as you call. It would have been strange to have never taken a picture on your phone. I bet not a single one of you uh, came here to retreat without your cell phone, and most of you probably can't even remember a world where the smartphone didn't exist. But if you had one in Alexander Graham Bell's day or in Tesla's day, that would have been wildly extraordinary, right? Right? If you had one of these iPhones in their day, it would have literally been borderline science fiction. You would have been Tony Stark. 
unless you have an Android. No one would be impressed. I had to get that one in there, I'm sorry. Blue is better than green, huh? what can I say? Um, the, the point is that, that what is so typical and usual and ordinary in your smartphone today would have been the most extraordinary, the most remarkable thing in their time. Uh, they would have seen it as almost science fiction. They'd struggle to believe their eyes when you're able to use your phone as a calculator and it has facial recognition and it can recognize your fingerprint. And, and they'd have a thousand different questions about how it would all work. But you and I just use our smartphones every single day without a second thought. Uh, why is that? Uh, we're certainly not smarter than Graham Bell was or Nikolai Tesla was. And it's not that the phone is any less ingenious or it's, it lacks some quality of being interesting. I think the reason for that different reaction of our understanding of the smartphone is, is not that the smartphone lacks interesting quality, but that we have grown accustomed to our smartphone. Our phones are such a standard and normal part of our lives that they just fail to pique our interest anymore, right? They, they fail to pique our curiosity and lead us to amazement anymore, despite how amazing they actually are. If you've been around GOC, even just for three quarters if you're a freshman, I wonder if this has happened to you when we bring up the name Jesus Christ. Because we're in a very, very privileged place. The name Jesus Christ comes up every single Friday night, right? And then on Sundays you hear two messages that exalt the name of Jesus Christ before you've even had lunch, sometimes even a third in the evening. And then you go to small group every single week to talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have like seven meetups a day, again, to talk about your relationship with this man, Jesus Christ. And this is a, a privilege beyond measure. It really is. But I wonder if in all the teaching and in all the preaching, in all the Bible study and in all the talk about Jesus Christ, you've grown accustomed to that name, Jesus Christ. I wonder if when you hear the word gospel, there's a little tiny part of you that, that kind of just says, you know, I know where this is going now. Or even just a little part of you that says something like, oh man, this part's going to be great for the, the, the really young believer here. Or for the, the unbeliever here. I, I'm so glad that they get to hear the gospel. Even for this retreat, looking to Jesus. I wonder if you had a little part in your mind that thought, don't we always do that? Isn't that what we just do every single week on a Friday and, and on a Sunday? We, we look to Jesus Christ. And especially for those of you who might have grown up in church, is there a sense in which these words, gospel and Jesus Christ, are just kind of Christian buzzwords for you that, that you've grown up hearing over and over and every single week? Is there a sense in which the gospel has lost its luster? Our, our passage today wants to correct that thinking by teaching us that the gospel is always worthy of our attention. No matter where you are in life, and no matter where you are in your spiritual life, you have not outgrown 
the gospel. There's never a, a time in your life where you should look at the gospel and it should not be captivating to you. So whether you could recite all of the Ten Commandments in order by the age of four, or whether you just heard the name Jesus Christ for the first time yesterday, this passage reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, is always relevant, it's always beautiful, it's always needful, and it's always deserving of our minds and our hearts' attention. So please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text this morning is just going to focus in on verses 10 through 12. But verses 3 through 12 is actually one gigantic sentence in the Greek, so we'll start from verse 3, and I think it'll help us capture Peter's heart in writing these words. Let's read together 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they, were not, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Do you see, it is my prayer that you would never grow accustomed to to the glory of the gospel in this text. This good news that we know so well, that the person and work of Jesus Christ is inexhaustible in glory, it's inexhaustible in beauty, and it deserves our attention, even this morning. Our text, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, proves that. In these verses, Peter shows us three reasons the gospel deserves your attention. Three reasons the gospel deserves your attention. I'm going to give you all three before we jump in. First reason we'll see is that the prophets studied it. The prophets studied it. Second, the preachers declared it. 
And third, the angels are captivated by it. First, the gospel deserves your attention because the prophets studied it. We're going to see that in verses 10 all the way through the beginning of verse 12. And just a fair warning, uh, we're going to be in this first point for the majority of our time this morning, so don't worry about missing lunch or anything. We'll, we'll make our way through. It's just that uh, this first point covers most of our text, so we'll hang out here for most of our time. Uh, let's just start with verse 10. Read that with me one more time. 1 Peter 1, 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now, right off the bat, Peter sort of references what he explained in the verses just before our text. He says, concerning this salvation. And that's why we read from verse 3, right? Because verses 3 through 9, Peter is explaining this salvation. Uh, Peter, in in verses 3 through 9, if you will, uses kind of a GP, right? He he gives a a gospel presentation. But it's not just a, a customary kind of obligatory Christian opener, Uh, when you write a letter. Uh, Peter isn't just offloading theological data either to his readers. Peter is very, very deliberate in how he presents the gospel to these readers because of their unique and specific situation. Back up even further to verse 1. Peter says that he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter's writing to Christians who have been scattered because of severe persecution. Uh, Many have been forced to leave their homes and flee. Uh, They've been uh, forced to disperse from their church gatherings and their fellowship. They've been ostracized from society. Uh, They're losing their jobs, and many of them are being killed in just awful and horrific ways, all because they refuse to recant their faith in Christ. So Peter's goal in this whole letter, but especially in this opener, is to encourage these readers to persevere in their faith. And and I just love that his first instinct is to preach the gospel. His first instinct to encourage them to press on in their faith is to remind them of the gospel. And it's profound that he reminds them that the very thing they're being persecuted for is what makes it worth it. And if you look at these verses, verses 3 through 9 with me one more time, you can see the sort of emphasis and tone that Peter has of hope and of encouragement. Look at verse 4, for example. Peter says that the hope they have in the gospel is imperishable. It's undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. What Peter is saying is that there's nothing here on this earth, no amount of trial or persecution that can undo what is kept in heaven for them. Look down to verse 6. Peter says that they are able to even rejoice through all of these trials and all of this persecution because it's just proving their faith to be the real thing. And so when the world does everything it can to destroy the faith of a true believer— Peter says that believer has reason to rejoice because the world will try to break down and destroy that faith but will fail every single time. 
And that believer will get to see that his soul is kept safely in the hands of God in heaven. And that's how Peter closes verse 9. Look at verse 9. He reminds his readers that even though their faith is what is causing them great hardship on this earth, it's worth it. Their faith in Christ is of supreme value because the ultimate end of it, the the ultimate outcome of their faith, verse 9, is the salvation of their souls. And that brings us to verse 10. And Peter says, concerning this salvation, this sure and assured salvation from God himself, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So the salvation of your soul that comes through faith in Christ was searched and inquired by the prophets. Peter here is talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. And these are the guys that you can just find by flipping through the first half of your Bible. He's talking about guys you've heard of like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and he calls them prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That phrase is kind of like a, like a job description of an Old Testament prophet, if you will. If you had to sum up what they did in a sentence, that's not a bad example. And to be fair, it wasn't all they did, but one of their main jobs was to prophesy or to predict or to foretell about a future grace. A grace that was coming, but that had not yet arrived. At least for them. Because Peter says that this is a grace that was to be yours. In other words, the the message of the prophets in your Old Testament is about a grace that you and I actually currently literally have right now as we sit in this room. It's the salvation of our souls through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what they searched and inquired carefully about. These verbs, searched and inquired, are synonyms in the Greek. Uh, They both refer to this extremely intense, thorough, and meticulous investigation. Peter uses both of them side by side, right next to each other, to emphasize his point that the prophets were intrigued, and they were curious about the prophecies of this future grace that you and I have. They were focused and investigative about how salvation would come to us. How, how it would be that we would be able to place our faith in somebody that we've seen to be saved. Peter here is painting this picture of the Isaiahs and the Ezekiels and the Jeremiahs of your Bible, not just as writers of Scripture, but as students of it. And you know exactly what this is like. If you don't, you will in about a week or two. This is Carnesale, finals week. This is a bunch of students just digging their noses into their books, searching for answers. This is you looking through the slides and asking your classmates for help and sometimes going on Chegg, just, just begging for answers for what this could possibly mean. You know what it's like in Peter's words to search and to inquire carefully. 
the, the prophets were searching and inquiring and investigating our salvation, and they had two specific questions about it that they wanted answers to. Who and when? Who and when? Look at verse 11. Peter says that the prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person, who, or time, when. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In all of their study of other prophecies, of other scripture, even of their own prophecies that they received from God, the prophets were dying to know who the Christ would be, the person, and when the Christ would come, the time. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? We don't call him Mr. Christ. Christ is actually the, the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one. It, very simply, it just refers to the one that would deliver God's people from the curse of sin. So the prophets knew that there would be a Christ, but they didn't know exactly who this Christ would be. They knew he was coming. They just didn't know exactly when he would arrive. They didn't have all the details. They were missing a few pieces of this gospel puzzle, but Peter tells us they did have something. Look again at verse 11. Peter says that the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets didn't know who exactly the Christ would be. They didn't know exactly when the Christ would come, but the Holy Spirit made something very clear to them. The Holy Spirit made it clear that whoever this Christ was, he would be marked first by sufferings and then by glories. And you can't miss the order here, right? Peter is careful to say that the Christ would have subsequent glories. Whoever this Christ was, he would have to endure many sufferings, plural, before being exalted to many glories, plural. Whoever this Christ was, he would be marked by suffering after suffering after suffering, but later by glory after glory after glory. With all this talk about the prophets, we're going to Spend some time flipping around our Old Testament. Uh, and I want you to see with our own two eyes what Peter was, was talking about. And this is definitely going to take some time, and we're going to be doing a lot more flipping than we usually do. But I want you to try to walk a few steps in a prophet's shoes. Try to understand what it must have been like to read or hear or even write these prophetic words without your New Testament. Try to imagine the kind of wonder and the eagerness you would have knowing these bits and pieces but not having the full picture. And as we do this, it's my prayer that God would just stir up in your heart an intrigue and a curiosity and an awe into your own salvation. First, let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 is probably a text that you've heard before, uh, probably in December, because we read this passage usually through the lens of Christmas. But again, you've got to remember, the Old Testament prophets didn't have Christmas. 
I know that's some of your worst nightmares, but no Christmas for the Old Testament prophets. Let's read together Isaiah 9, just verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with, right, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So in this passage, we've got a few great puzzle pieces of the coming Christ, right? Apparently, this Christ, whoever he is, will come as a child, as a little baby boy, for to us a son is given. But he'll also be a king, right? A king of unmatched and and unprecedented authority. And so you can imagine Isaiah getting these puzzle pieces from God, and he's like putting them together. And he's sort of backing up and a little bit confused, right? How how can it be that there's a a cradle in this corner of the puzzle and a crown over here? But we're talking about the same Christ? It seems like this Messiah will be both a child and a king. Flip over to Micah chapter 5. Micah is just after the book of Jonah and just before Nahum in your Bible. Uh, it's, a, it's a minor prophet, so it'll be closer to your New Testament. Uh, there's no shame in using your table of contents. No shame. Micah 5.2 is the verse we'll be looking at. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So you can imagine Micah kind of coming to the table that Isaiah is hanging out at, and he brings his other puzzle pieces to the table, and they're starting to put them together. And they see that, okay, this Messiah isn't just going to be a child, it's not just going to be a king, but we know actually where this Messiah is going to be born. It's an amazingly specific detail. Micah from God prophesies that from Bethlehem, this Messiah will come forth. Uh, Bethlehem was so small and so insignificant, Micah 5.2 says, that it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. And you can imagine the confusion that's, that's arising, right? How can the king of Judah come from somewhere That doesn't even matter to Judah. Bethlehem. Our coming king, a a king greater than King David, is going to come from Bethlehem? That's like saying the Sacramento Kings make it to the finals. And I can say that because I'm a Kings fan. But it's it's super strange. and, And it's wildly unexpected that this king over all the earth, this eternal king is going to come from Bethlehem of all places. So now the picture we've got is this child born in this tiny town called Bethlehem who's going to be the everlasting king of Israel forever. Flip back to Isaiah one more time with me. It's Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53 is kind of like a corner piece of the puzzle. It is indispensable in our understanding of what this Messiah will look like. Isaiah 53, we're just going to read verses 3 through 5 and verse 9 together, but I want you to take note of this whole passage and spend some time meditating on it maybe later. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5 and then verse 9 says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah, what do you mean by grave? Uh, What do you mean by man of sorrows and despised and rejected? What do you mean by pierced and crushed? Isn't this supposed to be our king? Uh, You said a few chapters ago his reign would never end and that we would have peace forever and that Israel would finally be exalted. What do you mean that we rejected him? We are the ones who can't wait for him. Isaiah, this can't be right. You said he was a a prince of peace. You said he was mighty God. These Old Testament believers had no conception of Roman crucifixion. But they knew that Isaiah said he would be pierced. They didn't know that the Christ would be crucified with a criminal on his left and and a criminal on his right but they knew that Isaiah said he would, be, he would be dying with the wicked. And they didn't know that the Christ would be buried in Joseph's tomb, but they knew that Isaiah said he would be buried with a rich man. And yet somehow, at the same time, they knew he would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Somehow he would die and be buried and be ruler in Israel forever. Uh, Wouldn't that mean he, he had to be raised from the dead? You see, none of them had ever celebrated Christmas. None of them had ever read the nativity scene in Luke or remembered in the rearview mirror Good Friday or celebrated Easter Sunday. They were longing and aching just to know how all of this would pan out. The Holy Spirit predicted these sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, and the prophets were driven to their knees trying to figure out how that was going to happen. They were sitting there in wonder and in awe, just searching and inquiring for who this is going to be and when he's going to be here. And so when all the puzzle pieces of the prophets came together, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, the list goes on, they, they put all their pieces together on the, on the table and they were still missing two critical pieces. Who and when? 
who and when. And guess who has those pieces now? We do. Does this not compel you to give your attention to what we have in the gospel? Do you not feel a, a profound duty and almost an obligation to steward your knowledge of Christ? Not just a Christ, but the very person, Jesus Christ, whom we know and see in the pages of our Bible. What a blessing it is to have Philippians 2, right? To have Ephesians and Romans and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Centuries of prophets before you were diligently and desperately and carefully studying, searching and inquiring about this Christ. And I wonder what they would think about how you and I study our Bibles. I urge you to give yourself to the searching out of the gospel. Like our phones, the gospel has not lost some of its intricacy or its beauty or its genius. And if the gospel is not profoundly affecting your life, no matter how long you've known it, you may have grown accustomed to the gospel. And the prophets would have been shocked by that. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13. This is going to be our last stop before we return to 1 Peter. Look at Matthew chapter 13 and very quickly just read verse 17 with me. Matthew 13, 17. Jesus himself says in Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you do, just stop for a moment and think about the kind providence of God that he would commission and compel these prophets to labor on in their ministry for our sakes. I, I just can't overstate how profound a blessing it is to know for certain who and when the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus Christ happened. And that's what the first phrase of 1 Peter 1.12 is saying. 1 Peter 1.12, Peter writes, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets were serving you in their seeking and searching out of the gospel. And I pray that that kind providence of God would compel you steward the gift of knowing who and when Christ is and when he would come. The prophets diligently studied and gave their attention to the gospel and we should do the same. Another reason the gospel deserves your attention is because the preachers declared it. The preachers declared it. Read with me that middle phrase of 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter tells us that there is another group that the Holy Spirit commissioned and compelled to minister to you and I with the gospel. He calls them 
those who preached the good news, literally announcers of the gospel. Here Peter is referring not just to apostles like himself and Paul and John, but also to anybody in his time who was being faithful to spread this gospel. You can read all about that in the book of Acts, and especially in Acts 2 as the early church was growing. But here in 1 Peter 1.12, you can see Peter making some parallels between Old Testament prophets and New Testament preachers. Uh, look how many times you see the word you in verse 12, for example. The prophets and the preachers both did what they did, not for themselves, but for you. And importantly, they also both did it by the Holy Spirit. Peter is trying to show us that there's a continuity of ministry from Old Testament prophets and New Testament preachers. I think a helpful way to think about this is a relay race in the Olympics. Right? You've got one runner running with a baton, and he's running to his second runner, and there's a brief moment where both of their hands are on the baton, they're running in stride, and then the second runner sort of takes off, and the first runner finishes his leg of the race. They're running the same race, right? They've got the same goal, they're holding the same baton, but they're just running at different times. Well, that's what happened with the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament preachers. It was the same divine Holy Spirit that fueled and empowered and informed their ministry. It was the same gospel message that they carried as they ran their race. And it was the same goal they had in mind, to minister the gospel to you and to me. Listen to Acts 26, 22 through 23. You don't have to turn there, just listen right now. This is Paul speaking, and he says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Preachers of the New Testament did not have a new message. Paul wasn't getting creative when he wrote Ephesians or when he wrote Romans. That's why all their writings, Peter's writings and Paul's and John's and the rest, are all perfectly harmonious because they weren't making up their own ideas. It was the same Holy Spirit informing their same message, and that's why they were willing to die just to preach this message because they were carrying a baton given to them from the prophets and first from the Holy Spirit. That's why they were willing to be persecuted and exiled, and beaten, and thrown into prison, just to carry this baton on from God. I don't know about you, but for me, that is a convincing enough reason to listen up when Scripture speaks. Our eyes and our ears need to be open to the declaration of the preachers of Scripture. Tune into what they have to say, because they found their message so important, so critical that they were willing to die just so that you could have a crystal clear view of Jesus Christ. So search and study their words in your Bibles because in their words is a, is a glorious picture of this Christ that so many 
have longed to see. Give your attention to this good news because the preachers of the New Testament dedicated their life to give it to you. Third and finally, the the gospel deserves your attention because the angels are captivated by it. The angels are captivated by it. We see that in the last few words of verse 12. The things of salvation that the prophets foretold and the preachers declared for us are things into which angels long to look. I hope that as we've unpacked these verses in 1 Peter that uh, you've been given a fresh perspective and, and maybe have been freshly amazed at, at our unique perspective of Jesus Christ. And as we come to this last phrase of 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, I hope that whatever interest or curiosity or wonder you have about what we've been talking about is just pushed over the edge into worship. Because this last phrase of our text is not complicated at all, but what it teaches us is just so awe-inspiring. It's almost unbelievable. Peter tells us that angels long to look into our salvation. Angels have a, a yearning and an aching to be able to understand how it is that sinners can be saved. In order to really understand the significance of this little phrase, I think we need to understand a little bit about angels. And don't worry, we're not going to talk about how many eyes they have or something like that. Um, it is more than you think, by the way. Uh, but something to remember about angels is that they are typically the ones who reveal things to us, right? Uh, usually when you see an angel in scripture, they're telling humankind something important. I think about the angel that told Mary about little baby Jesus, Usually they're revealing something to us. So when Peter tells us that angels are longing to look or are intensely curious about something that we know, that's shocking. Uh, This is the only time you have an upper hand on the angels. Angels are sinless creatures who spend their days in heaven in the presence of God, and yet we know something about God that they never will. Angels only get to sit in the stands and kind of watch on the jumbotron what God's grace looks like. But we get to know what God's grace feels like. They only get to observe and spectate God's grace, but you and I get to receive it and participate in it. One pastor said it this way, Holy angels don't need salvation, and fallen angels aren't offered it. That comes from Hebrews 2.16. It says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's only to the offspring of Abraham that God offers this mercy and grace that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to the angels. So with a little, maybe sanctified imagination, you can imagine the scene in heaven, literally right now as we sit here. Angels just hanging out in heaven and Somebody enters the gates of heaven who was once a sinner, once a rebel, once a a hater of God. And the angels are rejoicing and they're thrilled about this salvation that came to this man. But they also look at each other with all thousand of their eyes. 
and their jaws are just dropping on the floor, if they have jaws. And they're just saying, how in the world does God do that? He must be so gracious, so merciful and patient and loving, more than even we know, and we're in his presence every day. What must it be like to hate and to reject and rebel against God only to be shown his patience and his love and his grace and to be saved and taken into the presence of God into eternity? What must that be like? Turn with me to Ephesians 3.10. I know we've been doing a lot of flipping, but I think we just need to look at this verse together. It's such a cool passage. Ephesians 3.10 says this. This is Paul writing. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One commentator says of this verse that the church is God's university for angels. The church is God's university for angels. And never more is the infinite wisdom of God on display than it is in our salvation, than it is in our adoption into God's family. And the angels, Peter says, are just absolutely captivated by it. They live in heaven in the sinless presence of God day after day, and yet they peer down into earth to learn more about that God because of salvation. Revelation 5 says that there's thousands of these angels, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's how the angels are worshiping God, but the angels have never known God like you will. That's what the angels worship and song look like, but they don't know him like you do. How much more does the lamb who was slain deserve your attention and your honor because he was slain for you? And if you're not a Christian here today, I just want to say to you that if you would look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, this very instant you would know God in a way that the angels wish they could. You might know God for 10 seconds through salvation, and you would know him in a way that angels are longing to understand. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 is a text that pictures these three groups of creatures all captivated by the same thing. The prophets and the preachers and the angels all focused in on this one thing, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then there's us, us who hear three sermons every week, us who have grown up in church probably and have like three different Bibles, all different leathers. We go to small groups and meetups, we listen to podcasts every week. Sometimes we obsess over things that angels couldn't care less about, but it's also us who have the best seat in the house to know the glory of God in Jesus Christ 
through the gospel. The gospel that says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is Ephesians 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do not grow accustomed to this unmatched blessing of seeing the finished work of Jesus Christ. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the privilege that it is to be on this side of Calvary. Thank you for the unthinkable blessing it is to hold a, a full Bible in our hands and to see the continued ministry of the prophets to the preachers of the New Testament and to see the full story of who Christ is and what He's done and what He will do. God, would you help us to fix our eyes on Him and to never grow accustomed to what it is we have not just in the message, not just in the theology, but in Jesus Christ himself, because we know exactly who he is. We saw him come in Bethlehem. Would you help us to be thankful and to respond with passionate worship for this gift of of seeing Christ from start to finish? Hold him before our eyes even now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.